it would be hard to find a story that is more sensationalized and mythologized than the story of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth called Christ. And yet there is not another story that needs less editing, less improvement than this one. <laughs> but by the time 2,000 years of history, even church, church history gets done with this story, it is hardly recognizable. An extreme makeover as if the original <laughs> wasn't good enough. Of course, we could talk about the commercialization of the birth of Christ in the Christmas holiday and traditions. It would take days to share all of the stories from around the world, which is amazing to think that much of the world celebrates the birth of Jesus. <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, they, they enjoy a celebration of self-indulged, a self-indulged festival with no worship or even acknowledgement of its supreme purpose and eternal value. But, but just sticking with our own country, the Christmas story has been co-opted by commercialism and materialism, the grand opportunity you know, to make a buck, Black Friday and Santa Claus. Where would you begin with just you know, our country? Well, let me take a stab. The North Pole, St. Nicholas, flying reindeer, the 12 days of Christmas, chimneys, sugar plums, stockings, gifts, coal, candy canes, tinsel, white Christmas, Christmas trees, Christmas break, Christmas cars, ornaments, wrapping paper, Christmas wreaths, Christmas lights, mistletoe, poinsettias, Christmas carols, and holiday songs, not to be confused, since carols usually refer to the birth of Jesus, and songs may include I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, Jingle Bells, or Silver Bells. Or Santa Claus is coming to town, or I'll be home for Christmas, or Christmas shoes wipe that tear away. You get the idea. <coughs> Sleigh rides, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Christmas caroling, hot wassail, hot chocolate, fruitcake. Not sure how that made the list. Christmas cookies, gingerbreads was the night before Christmas, Hallmark movies, Christmas movies, Home Alone, Die Hard. It's a Christmas movie. The Nutcracker Ballet, Scrooge, or the Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Really, it is our secular society that has stolen Christmas. Do you see? And that's all just the secular, secularization of the holiday, much of which has absolutely nothing to do with the reason for the season. <laughs> but we, that is Christians, have even messed that up. A few weeks ago in Luke chapter 1 at the Annunciation, when Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary, I talked about some of the mythological legends re regarding Mary. For example, if you weren't here, here, her mother's name, you may not know this, was Anne, not found in the Bible. And there is a church built in St. Anne's honor by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Mary took a vow of virginity at the age of three. <laughs> and a, a vow of virginity at three... <laughs> Uh, and grew up in the temple where she enjoyed ecstatic visions and daily visitations by angels. Mary was born without sin. It's called the doctrine of the immaculate conception. Not only was she born sinless, she remained sinless, never sinned. It's called the doctrine of perfect sanctity. Therefore, without sin, Mary did not experience labor pains when Jesus was born. It truly was a silent night. 
The perpetual virginity of Mary teaches she remained a virgin her entire life despite her marriage to Joseph, but but, but even though she never sinned, she ended up dying at her own request, you see, so she could be reunited with her son. In fact, at the assumption of Mary, that is when she went to heaven, she skipped purgatory, no sin. When she arrived in heaven, she was met by Jesus who crowned her the queen of heaven. Further, we should pray to Mary because as the wedding at Cana demonstrates, Jesus never refuses a request from her, and a predominant uh, 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 Marian prayer is the Hail Mary full of grace, leading to a movement through the centuries to name Mary, are you ready, as co-redeemer with her son. That is, either Mary or Jesus can save you, you pick. Most of that is Catholic false teaching about Mary, but even we Protestants hold dearly, if we're honest, to legends regarding her and Joseph, especially concerning the nativity, that is the birth of Jesus, that may or may not be found in the Bible. Consider many holiday greeting cards have her riding a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We just sang about it, but no donkey is mentioned. Speaking of animals, most nativities have the cattle lowing or the ox and the ass are keeping time. Some of you are surprised I said that word. I had donkey. It didn't sound right. Uh, keeping time, uh, and yet no uh, animals are mentioned. While we imagine a conversation between Joseph and an uncaring, unkind innkeeper, there is no such innkeeper mentioned, so no such conversation. While the manger is mentioned, there is no reference to a stable, a crash, or a cave, which came about with Justin Martyr in the second century. And most nativities um, also have the presence of angels, again, not mentioned. They're out in the fields hanging out with the shepherds. Most nativities have, <laughs> I love this one, three kings present, which were neither three nor kings, nor even present. (laughs) They came later. Um, Most paintings have the ever-present halo around yon virgin mother and child. Further, it does not really matter if you like the song, Sorry, King and Country. There was no drummer boy mentioned either. And finally, Jesus probably wasn't this will blow your socks off. Probably wasn't born in winter on December 25th, since the shepherds were keeping watch over their fields, uh, over the flocks in the fields by night. So most suggest his birthday was more likely in the fall or in the spring. Where did the date of December 25th come from? This is interesting. In the 4th century, Pope Julius I decided on December 25th, likely, get this, to battle the celebrated birthday of the Roman sun god Sol Invictus or the mid-December festival called Saturnalia, celebrating the agricultural god named Saturn. So don't miss that December 25th was arbitrarily chosen to combat the pagan festivals celebrating pagan gods, celebrating those pagan gods in the dead of winter, hoping that winter would give way to spring. The bishop's hope, you see, the pope's hope was that by doing so, the church would have an influence on culture. Isn't that interesting? It's a worthy goal, I suppose, but the opposite actually happened. I don't have time to recount it all, but much of what the world and even the Church of Jesus Christ celebrates at Christmas is actually of pagan origin, everything from Christmas trees to mistletoe. What culture did to celebrate their gods, you see, has infiltrated the church rather than as intended the other way around. I'm not suggesting that you should get rid of your Christmas trees. We have one. Or stockings hung by the chimney with care. I'm suggesting that we remember the reason for the season and that we remember what actually happened. It really is a good story on its own. 
Why do I bring this all up today besides irritating some of you? <laughs> because it's August. It's not December. Thankfully, Christmas decorations haven't arrived yet, at least for a few more weeks. And someone came up to me after the first service and said, uh, after the first service and said uh, actually, Hobby Lobby, uh, whatever. <laughs> and we, <laughs> it's August. And we find ourselves in Luke 2, one of the most famous, perhaps the most well-known passage found in the Bible. Thank you, Linus, from Charlie Brown's Christmas. So with all that as introduction, that is what the Christmas story is not. <laughs> we get ready to study the birth of Christ without all of the trappings and the clutter of Christmas. I don't have to battle Santa at least for a few more months or days. <laughs> yes, last week we did mention, and again this morning, Operation Christmas Child, but that's because those OCC shoeboxes carry each carry the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, which is, by the way, the ultimate reason for the season. You see, the incarnation does not save us, but without the incarnation, we would not be saved. In order, you see, for Jesus to die in flesh, he first had to be born in flesh, live a perfect life, and then die in that flesh, not for his own sins, since he had none, but for ours. This is an incredibly important event, and it's a wonderful story. So let's read the true unvarnished Christmas story in our text this morning. Luke chapter 2, the first seven verses say this. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was rule, a governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of, uh, of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. If we didn't have chapter 1, that would be scandalous. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Again, I ask you, why does that story need to be improved, <laughs> embellished? Why does it need to be sanitized? Well, you say, because it doesn't seem to us to be the best narrative of the birth of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Come on, we can do better than that, so we try. Certainly, it couldn't be as base as all that, right? As one Christmas, as one asks of the Christmas story, what is wrong with this picture? You see, it is intended to assault our senses, to shock us. You see, in our study of Luke, we're finding Jesus came in a way that you would never expect to a people you would never pick. Which means it is, ex it is actually the perfect way for the Savior of sinners to come. The perfect way. Let's leave it alone. Let me give you the unbellished outline of the simple text, the historical setting of the birth, which is incredibly important, the necessary travel for the birth. You'll see what I mean by necessary in a moment. And then the humiliating birth the humiliating 
birth of Jesus, not what you would expect for the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You know well by now that Luke was an accomplished historian, he investigated the story of Jesus carefully in order to give a researched faithful account. But not only was Luke an historian, he was, he was also an able theologian, meaning the history that he gives is for a theological purpose even what it records here. And as we'll see, the purpose is stunning, shocking. It continues a major theme in the book that we have called the Great Reversal. You see, the first name mentioned in this birth narrative, the first name is Caesar Augustus, the august one, the majestic one, indeed even the holy one, the first and greatest of Roman rulers, of uh, Roman emperors, the great, the great builder, the able administrator, the architect of the Pax Romana, that is the ruler, or dare I call him, the prince of peace. Is, this, is, this is what you would expect of the savior of the world. You never would have done it this way. Let's look at the historical setting of the birth. We remember back in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias during the days of Herod the Great. Well, Herod, we know, ruled from 37 to 4 B.C. We find in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod was still alive when Jesus was born. The Magi came from the east to worship the newborn king, and so Herod inquired of the Jewish priests, scribes, where the Messiah was to be born. He was told, everybody knew it, Bethlehem. We'll come back to that, but at, the, at that time, after the Magi worshipped Jesus, who was still in Bethlehem, they left secretly for home, avoiding Herod. So Herod gave the orders for all the boys of Bethlehem under the age of two, that's interesting, to be put to death. We surmise from that, adding two years years to 4 BC when Herod died that Jesus was born as early as 6 BC. Now in chapter 2, Luke is writing of the birth of Jesus, born six months after John the Baptist. Then we find that Caesar Augustus, not Herod, no, 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 we got to elevate because we're talking about Jesus. Uh, Caesar Augustus was reigning Caesar in Rome, the, the, the worldwide ruler. But who is this Augustus? Well, he was born in 63 BC as Gaius Octavius, the English form of the word Octavian. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who took a liking to Octavian and named him as his adopted son and heir of his name, Caesar, you see, and property. It named him the heir in his will. So in 44 BC, when Julius was assassinated by Brutus and Cassius, Octavian inherited the estate of, of Julius as well as that title Caesar. He would rule in a triumvirate, the second triumvirate in, in Rome, with two others, Mark Antony, who was married to Octavian's sister. Octavian's sister's name was Octavia. They could have used a name book. Uh, and, the, and the third ruler was a guy by the name of Lepidus. These three went after the assassins of Julius, Brutus and Cassius, and killed them. And then they divided their rule into three parts. But soon thereafter, Lepidus was exiled. Octavian got the best of him and exiled him in 37 BC, leaving simply Mark Antony and Octavian to rule. But, but Mark Antony fell under the wiles of an Egyptian seductress named Cleopatra, the Ptolemaic queen of Egypt. And so Antony divorced his wife to marry Cleopatra, 
But that was a problem because the woman he divorced, Octavia, was Octavian's sister. So Octavian went to war with Antony and defeated him in, the, in, in that famous naval battle of Actium in 31 BC, leaving Octavian as the sole ruler of the ever burgeoning Roman power. In fact, in 27 BC, Octavian was named by the Roman Senate the first emperor of the Roman Empire. In fact, the first citizen of the Roman Empire. And he received that name, Augustus. Heretofore, reserved only for deity. Right. It means majesty, revered. Esteemed, honored, holy one. Began what would become the emperor cult, where eventually emperors were seen as divine, as God. Caesar Augustus ruled from 27 BC until his death in 14 AD. Now, to be clear, he was an able and a rather magnificent builder. He built cities and roads all over the empire. It is said that Octavian, uh, that Augustus said of himself that he inherited a Roman brick and left it in marble which was largely true. He expanded his rule across the Mediterranean Sea from Western Europe and Hispania, which is Spain, all the way uh, to the Middle East and beyond, to, uh, south to North Africa, to include Egypt, which he inherited when he got rid of Cleopatra. He instituted the, the famed Pax Romana, the Roman peace. True, the peace came under the dictatorial rule of the empire with an iron fist, but it was largely an empire-wide, heretofore unknown peace. What's important for our purposes is the way in which Augustus, by name and by veneration, approached the divine, godlike status. Uh, true, Julius Caesar and even Augustus Caesar were not officially declared divine until after their death, but Augustus was revered by many throughout the empire. Temples of worship were built in his honor. He even received the title, listen to this, in various inscriptions across the empire, the son of Zeus, the son of God, the savior of the world. <laughs> really? And why not? Isn't this what you would have expected if you were writing the script for the world's savior? Come on. Augustus in the senior superlatives was the voted most likely to succeed. Jesus, the most likely to cause trouble. You shouldn't do that. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That would have gone over real well as, as a senior. Powerful. Augustus was, ruler of the then known world, builder, able, administrator, bringer of world peace. He'd make a great savior, don't you think? They did. Jesus, give me a break. Well, the Jews didn't really care for Augustus. They hated their Roman oppressors. They hated ruthless Roman taxation. In most countries where Rome ruled, periodic censuses were taken for two purposes, to conscript, to conscript those of military age into Rome's powerful army and to assess taxes. 
Because of the Jews' frequent rebellions, Augustus very wisely chose not to draft them into his army. You don't want the enemy in your army. But the taxation now, that was ruthless and relentless. It was, it was a symbol to the, to the Jews that not only were they their overlords, they owned everything about them, even their money. It was a constant reminder that they were under the oppressive yoke of Rome. Is it any wonder that Jews hated tax collectors? I don't know, like Matthew and Zacchaeus. They worked for Rome. They were the scum of the earth. They worked for the enemy. And who did Jesus pick? By the way, when Augustus died, his adopted son Tiberius became emperor and was emperor during the ministry of Jesus. It was this emperor of which the religious leaders of Israel once asked Jesus, actually during his Passion Week, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They hated the taxes, to which Jesus responded, show me a denarius, the coin that was used to pay the poll tax. Who's holding it up? Whose inscription is it? Caesar's, they replied. I'm sure with as much venom as they could muster, it was Tiberius's image, you see, then render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's. We would do well to remember that word from our Lord. In those, now in those days, the days of John's birth and Jesus' coming birth, a decree, the Greek word is dogma, an official decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Such decrees were well known usually in specific regions, again, for the purpose of conscription into the army or for taxation. It was for the latter. This decree was enforced in Palestine. This one, however, was a bit unusual in that typically a census, again, was for a specific area, but this one issued for all the inhabited earth, that is, all those under Roman rule. We read further that it was the first census taken while Quirinius was ruler of Syria. Syria included modern Syria and Palestine, later to become a Roman province. Until this time, Israel had been ruled, we know, by Herod the Great. But given the, the regular political and religious unrest in the area, a Roman governor was eventually appointed after Herod's death, which presents, frankly, a bit of a historical challenge. You see, we know from extra-biblical literature, like from Josephus and Tacitus, uh, they, they, they tell us that Quirinius was, in fact, governor from 6 to 9 uh, A.D. A.D., that doesn't fit the timeline. Uh, further, there was another census in 6 A.D. that caused a rebellion. That's when Quirinius was around. It led to the establishment of this political group called the Zealots. What's, what's going on? So for our purposes, we know Jesus was born while Herod was still alive, perhaps even a couple of years before Herod's death in 4 BC, as early as 6 BC. And so some have suggested, of course, that Luke, the careful historian, well, he made a mistake, and so the Bible has a mistake in it. Yeah, not so fast. I won't take the time to trace it all out, but Lots of reasons, lots of rationale given, but the most reasonable of, of those that I read is that the, the word governor is a general term, and we know that Quirinius was a military leader in, of all places, Syria from 6 to 4 B.C. 
And further, we notice that this was the first census when Quirinius was governor, military leader in Syria, which implies that there was another, and indeed there was, in 6 AD that Luke refers to in Acts chapter 5. The point is, while many suggest Luke, and therefore the Bible is in error, this so-called discrepancy can be easily explained. Listen, when people tell you that there are discrepancies or errors in the Bible, don't believe it. This is true and faithful. Now, verse 3 presents, though, yet another minor challenge, and that is Roman censuses didn't typically require people to go register for, for the census in the place of their ancestral birth. That's kind of weird, but again, easily explained. It's likely that Herod made the requirement, as this was typically a Jewish custom, a Jewish policy. He was simply trying to make this particular census since it involved taxation, a bit more palatable. And the one that comes 12 years later, in 6 AD, they didn't do that, and it gave rise to riots and, well, the zealots. It all makes sense. But there was a greater purpose for the required return to the place of your ancestral birth, which brings to our second point, the necessary travel for the birth in verses 4 and 5, it was apparently six months after Mary returned um, uh, home uh, to, uh, to Nazareth. Uh, remember, she was already pregnant by the time she got to Elizabeth's home. She stayed there for three months. So now, six months later, Joseph and Mary made the trip to Nazareth to register for the census. You should know that the registration was not required at a specific time, like a specific weekend, like everybody would descend on a small town on a specific weekend. I don't know, like last weekend. It wasn't like that. Okay? Uh, the, the Roman census usually gave you a year in which the registration was uh, required, meaning the little town of Bethlehem may not have been overrun with people uh, uh, registering for the census. And yet, if time was running out, as many suggest, people may have made the trip at the last minute. Well, that's what people do. I pay my taxes on April 15th, which might explain why Joseph and his nine-month pregnant betrothed made such an arduous journey of some 80 to 90 miles while she was nine months pregnant. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. We know well by now the Messiah must be from the family of David per prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's why earlier Luke had said when he first mentioned Joseph, now in the sixth month, that is of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel went from, uh, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, first time mentioned, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his whole gospel with the genealogy of Joseph. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of David. And Matthew then traces the genealogy from Abraham through David, eventually to Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Because you see, the first qualification to be the Messiah is that Jesus be of the line of David. And guess what? He was legally through the line of Joseph. Second, per Isaiah, he must be born of a virgin, which Matthew quotes, and, and he was a virgin, by the way, through the Virgin Mary. 
But, but, but there is a third requirement of the birth of the Messiah, which leads to the necessity, don't miss this, the necessity of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Remember in Matthew 2, when the Magi came from the east, they asked, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod asked the religious leaders, where is Messiah supposed to be born? They answered, Matthew chapter 1, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 2, from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. I find that interesting. From the teeming metropolis of the nothing city of Nazareth to the nothing town of Bethlehem, because that's the way Jesus came. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. Don't miss it. This ruler to come to be born in Bethlehem will be from the days of eternity. Luke is carefully recording that Jesus met all of the qualifications to be the Messiah. But again, is this the way that you would have written the script? Is this, is this, what, how, is this who you would have picked? <laughs> we would likely... Let's be honest, have picked the great nephew of Julius Caesar, Gaius Octavian, Caesar Augustus. After all, that's who the people picked. Augustus, the savior of the world, right. Because our criteria is completely different from God's. We're so easily impressed with things that do not matter. Joseph went up from the two-bit town of Nazareth to the two-bit town of Bethlehem in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. We remember when Mary heard that she was to bear the Son of God, uh, the Messiah, she went to see Elizabeth who was in her sixth month. She stayed there three months, returned to Nazareth at, some, at which point her pregnancy would have been well observed. We know what you've been doing. Matthew tells, of Joseph, tells us that Joseph was considering how he might divorce her. Remember when you were betrothed, you were considered husband and wife. He was considering how to end the betrothal period now that his beloved Mary had clearly been unfaithful. Angel appeared to him and we read, in Matthew 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear son. You just call his name Jesus. He's going to be the world savior. It's not who you think. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin, don't miss this, until she gave birth to a son and he called his name 
Jesus. We don't know exactly when Joseph took Mary as his wife, but Luke indicates that they were still betrothed at the birth. Perhaps he took her into his home. No, as we talked about earlier, no celebratory marriage ceremony, no fanfare, no parade. He simply took her in his home as commanded, but kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. They were, so they were technically still betrothed. The marriage not consummated when they made the trip to Nazareth. He took her along, you see, as she was due. Or because they were considered husband and wife. Or because, well, she was his responsibility. Or for protection from the Nazareth gossip mill. So they went to the place of Joseph's ancestral birth, to Bethlehem, you see, because that's where God said the Messiah would be built. Again, is this the way you would have done it? It is, you see, if you were doing what God was doing in the great reversal, sending his son in a way you would never, uh, in a way you never would have done it to those you never would have picked. It was a rather inauspicious beginning for the Savior of the world. And don't miss, while neither Augustus nor his adopted son Tiberius were in fact the savior of the world, regardless of what people proclaimed them to be, Augustus was involved in the birth of the Son of God, the Savior. (laughs) Such irony. God used the great Augustus as a pawn merely a pawn to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem right on schedule, meaning God would do and use whatever necessary to to carry out his divine plan per divine prophecy. Mighty Augustus was simply a pawn to carry out God's purposes. Do you suppose for a minute that the same may be true today, that God raises rulers up and takes them down and uses them to accomplish his purposes? Are you worried about the Republican nominee or the the Democratic nominee, the the next mighty president of the United States. No need to be, you see. God is in charge, and he will use them as he pleases. You see, even the U.S. president, president is not the savior of the world. You see how misguided we can become. Very quickly then, our last point, the humiliating, the humiliating birth of Jesus. Is this the way you would have done it? Verses 6 and 7, while they were there, they were, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. That's it. No fanfare. Simply and sweetly stated, Jesus was born. Right, on time, and in the right place. Take just a few, make just a few comments as we close. First, she gave birth to her firstborn son. Gabriel said that she would have a son, the son of God, and so guess what? She did. There's no reason to for Joseph and Mary to hold their breaths as, a, as the child was delivered to discover the gender. God had already determined the gender. 
Further, notice Jesus was her firstborn. Now, some suggest that that means that she and Joseph had other children. And in fact, they did. That's what other texts indicate. But that's not necessarily what firstborn means here. It simply means her new child, her firstborn, was a son, which would require a sacrifice to redeem him, as we will see later. Next, we see that she wrapped him in cloths, strips of cloth, which was the common practice of the day for all newborns. Stop right there. The common practice of the day for all newborns, just simple strips of cloth, no royal robe, no royal crown. Is this what you would have done it? Some of you may have heard that in Bethlehem, the lambs were, that were raised there were for the sacrifices at the temple, especially Passover lambs. As soon as the lambs were born, they would wrap them in strips of cloth so that they would be without blemish. It's a sweet story, and it may even be true, but that has little to do with what we read here. The practice was simply to wrap or bundle children's arms and legs with strips of cloth. They did, them to, they did this to all newborns to keep them straight and to help them feel secure. Don't we do the same today when we swaddle babies? Moms then were as smart as we are. She laid him in a manger, for there was no room for them in the inn. Manger, as you know, is a feeding trough. Dirty. Unclean. Again, no mention of a stable or a cave or crash. Simply an unclean, smelly, dirty feeding trough for the Savior of the world's first crib. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came in a way that you would never expect. You should know that the family animals were kept in homes at night, usually in an area right off the living space. The, the, the family house usually went like this. It was usually two rooms, one for living and one for sleeping. But the living space where you ate and cooked and all of that, uh, usually off the, to the side and a little bit lower behind a kind of a lower wall, fenced off was a place for animals. You brought your animals in at night. It was there that a manger would have been. For the Savior of the world, God in the flesh. Which leads to the last thing. When we read there was no room for them in the inn, we should not think of Motel 6. There were such squalid accommodations, but that was a different word. Luke used it in Luke chapter 10 when he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. But here the word is different. It's the kataluma. It is used simply to speak of spaces available in those homes for guests. You see, if you had a home, you would allow guests to stay in a guest room, usually one side of the living room. You certainly never put them in this space right next to the animals. You wouldn't make them sleep with the animals, but here it seems the guest space provided for travelers, perhaps in Joseph's ancestral home, was taken by more important guests. Maybe there was no room for them. So Joseph and Mary were simply shown to an area housing the animals inside the house, perhaps in a pen outside the home. 
And there the Savior of the world was born. Simply Mary, as we sang, no mother, no midwife. Simply Mary and her betrothed Joseph with the pungent odors of the animals, if indeed there. Perhaps since it was at night, a dim lamp brought in for the birth. And Jesus was born, wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a makeshift crib. And so, there you go, church. The first Christmas story. Your Savior has been born. Impressive, is it not? As Pastor Kent Hughes writes, the baby Mary... The baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who would become a God, but a far greater wonder, the true God, who would become a man. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped, God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped the cold and his cry pierced the night. I know, you want me to sanitize the scene. That's what we've done. What's wrong with this picture? Absolutely nothing. It's not the way we would have done it. The Savior of the world, born in dirty conditions to a nondescript couple from the nothing town of Nazareth, while being forced to register in a census for taxation by the mightiest man on the planet. But God was communicating something wonderfully different in the way Jesus came. He humbled himself and came in the lowliest of fashion to save the lowliest of people, sinners like you and like me. It's a beautiful story. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I believe that it is true that, I I know it is true for me, that if I were writing the story, if I were writing the script, I never would have written it this way. I would have had Jesus born in the hallowed halls of the temple precincts or in Rome or Alexandria, any number of much more important place. I would have had him born not to Joseph and Mary. Are you kidding me? I hadn't born to the high priest or even better, the Caesar king because he was a king. But you sent him differently. And Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself of the majesty of his deity. Not his deity, but the majesty of his deity. And the way that he came is a picture of those he came to save. People are undeserving. 
unworthy recipients of grace. The Father remind us that there is nothing wrong with this picture that is exactly the way you designed it to demonstrate your love for the likes of people like us. And our only response can be one of humble, joy-filled gratitude. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.